Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. A lot of analysts are calling yesterday's market crash a highly technical sell-off. So I think it's a wonderful day to take a look at the infrastructure of markets. Was this a flash crash? And what does that mean about markets going forward? I am very happy to bring in Dennis DeBusher. He is head of portfolio strategy at Evercore ISI, and he joins us right now uh, by phone. Dennis, thank you so much for being with us. So did we just no witness a flash crash and what was behind this? I mean, uh, people are blaming algorithms. How how valid is that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to identify how valid it is, and we it's difficult to know what a flash crash technically is because it's a term that's defined very loosely. But uh, I would argue, as far as the VIX is concerned, and as far as volatility is concerned, it was absolutely a flash crash if you invert the chart, of course. Um, and for the markets, um, you had elements of it. So what does that mean? The markets, and certainly in a quantitative driven world, optimized to certain, condi certain conditions. And the conditions that existed was, um, and which led to a massive short volatility trade, either implicitly or explicitly, was that there was gonna be no inflation forever. And there were, by extension, no economic volatility and no market volatility. And now it seems that you're pricing in some level of inflation, some higher level of rates, and that started to kick in this unwind of this ultra-levered, I would argue, short volatility bet. And given that we went to a high of 50 overnight on the VIX from nine just not too long long ago, and it really accelerated the course of the day, I would say absolutely it's a flash crash. I would say the one additional point here to make, and I don't think people realize, is algos make 90% of electronic trading, and electronic trading dominates all trading right now. And so order books, the depth of them are not as what they used to be when you used to have classic market making. Um, people and bank balance sheets very, very levered and ability to absorb losses. So you have very little depth. And if you have millions of orders going in one direction and you re-optimize to higher volatility, it can set off these type of crash, flash crash events. Dennis, I, I want to just step back for a second because, as you just described, you know, uh, a lot of the trading, the day-to-day -day price is set by machines and algorithms, whereas investors may actually buy companies that they think are doing well or yes. are going to actually do better. Um, speak, if you can, about capital spending expenditures when it comes to companies and the tax overhaul plan and how that may, in effect, sort of build on the improvements that we saw in the stock market at least last year and that we're going to see some spending when companies uh, get their hands on all that cash, not just going to be all share buybacks. Yeah, I mean, first, thanks for talking about fundamentals. Uh, so, um, yes, I mean, one of the things we've noticed, and you can see it in the uh, Fed's regional diffusion indices of CapEx plans have all accelerated meaningfully. Uh, it appears that post-tax reform, at least from the confidence readings you're getting from businesses, that capital uh, capital spending is going to increase meaningfully, which adds um, you know another lever, if you will, to GDP growth that's been entirely consumption-driven for a long period of time. So companies will be spending more. 
um, that is going to create much higher relative to expectations, levels of GDP growth, not only this year, but next year. And so that's why you have U.S. GDP growth trending up from 25 to, say, maybe even 3, and global GDP, because it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, somewhere in the 3 to 3.9 range. That's a very solid backdrop. And if you have some inflation with that and not a lot, that's a really good backdrop for asset prices historically. We also have central bank policy globally that isn't going to be pushing hard against improving economic growth, i.e. they're not going to be trying to lift the unemployment rate to stop inflation. So all of that says that, and that's probably why credit spreads haven't blown out, which everybody has talked about. That's why economic fundamentals are likely to stay relatively solid that a lot of what's happening now is technical. The fundamentals are still there, and the market is still biased higher over time. And so, and it's very good, obviously, for earnings on a go-forward basis when you're looking at 155 consensus for this year and 171 for 2019. So I guess, then, Dennis, the question is, can investors just completely ignore technical sell-offs or should they pay attention, especially given the fact that some estimate that there's $2 trillion tied to short volatility strategies right now uh, that really didn't move necessarily in this, in this now, reason? So. I, I would never say I want to just ignore it, but I would say you the ability to profit from it is extremely difficult. Relative to history, when we used to have different measures of sentiment, you could say like just talking to people in the street, et cetera, that they might be um, – um, overly concerned about a market decline. I've been looking at my server all morning and I can't tell if it's happy or sad. I can't tell if it's capitulated. So I think you have to ride out the volatility if it's technical driven. Are you really trying to assess the state of mind <laughs> of your computer server? <laughs> I'm, just saying, I'm just saying in this new world, you know, trying to pick these bottoms and volatility has become, it become very difficult. And to answer your question, more or less you do have to, as long as you believe in the fundamentals longer term that are supportive that you do have to ignore a lot of this technical stuff and just have a you know uh, a tougher stomach stomach for it dennis does this as the head of portfolio uh, strategy it does this uh, sort of bring out that conversation with investors and clients they say they can stomach the risk but when the day like yesterday takes place it turns out that maybe they can't I mean, yes. I mean, in talking with uh, in talking with investors, that's obviously a concern. But I would also say, don't forget where we came from. We're just flat on on the indices. I mean, you're up, you know, a two over twofold uh, since the financial crisis. You've had extremely uh, favorable returns in the market. So I don't think there's any sense of panic at all from individual investors. Yes, there's concerns because on all over the TV is this low volatility unwind. But we're not at a place or anywhere close to a place where anybody thinks about pain. Market returns have just been too strong. Thanks very much for being with us. Dennis DeBusher, he is the head of portfolio strategy for Evercore ISI, helping to manage more than $8 billion in customer assets. Before we say anything or do anything with the bond market, we always check in with Ira Jersey. He is our chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Ira, we got a little bit of a sell-off at the long end, buying at the short end. Give us an update on what's going on in the Treasury market. 
Yeah, so in the treasury market today, it's it's actually selling just about everywhere. Um, yesterday was uh, you know pretty um, pretty correlated with the move in the VIX. If you uh, if you look, we had one of the biggest. Uh, well, we certainly had the biggest rally of uh, of treasury yields in the last couple of uh, couple of months, where you had a 14 basis point rally in in ten year yields. And the last time you saw that was around uh, you know other little jitters in in markets, and um, you know. It was it was really huge moves, and and the volume that went through was was astounding. In fact, you don't normally see volume at three o'clock like the volume after you see payrolls reports or Fed uh, or Fed statements, and uh, and that's exactly what you had yesterday with just this massive volume going through. Lots of people. Well, it's, it's hard to tell if there were lots of people buying, but certainly the volume of buying was was quite astounding. Well, Ira, I want to home in on that because I'm wondering: Do we have a sense of who's behind this? Is this real money accounts with people? people actually trying to liquidate some of their treasury holdings? Or is this uh, algorithmic trading that is correlated with stocks or whatever else uh, and is sort of moving on its own uh, affair and will get at some point rectified as people <laughs> reassess uh, inflation and growth uh, expectations in the U.S.? Yes, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people yesterday and we were all kind of scratching our heads and saying, like, this this can't be human. It's, it's a little bit too fast for that. So um, it probably was some kind of either algorithm or, um, you know, people were talking about potentially risk parity strategies, uh, rebalancing or, or, or or something like that. But to your point, Lisa, and that's a great point, is that today's move is kind of counter to that. So we put out a note this morning um, on uh, on uh, BI rates uh, on your terminal. And basically, we discussed that, look, when you get these moves of, you know, 10, 15, 20 basis points in 10-year treasuries or uh, across the market, you tend then to see a lower volatility day that follows and usually some counter trend to that. And that's exactly what we're getting today. Um, and, and in fact, over the last seven years, you tend to get these big bouts of volatility, and they might be driven by algorithmic or, or electronic trading, and um, and they tend to be very short-lived. And then you wind up with people saying, okay, is, is this justified based on the fundamentals? Has anything really changed? Um, and then once you realize that, no, things haven't really changed uh, from an economic standpoint, then you can get back to kind of the, the old trends you were on. Uh, Ira, I just want to understand a little bit more about old trends and new trends, because uh, earlier in the day we were speaking with uh, Alberto Gallo of Algebras, and he, I thought it was very, uh, very prescient when he said people have been buying stocks for yield and bonds for capital gains. <laughs> Is that about to change? Well, I think that that actually has changed. I mean, I think that changed probably two years ago when we hit the uh, you know 150 yield on uh, on 10-year Treasuries. Because once you start to move back from that, it's hard to see how you get significant returns or at least returns much higher than the coupon at this point on a lot of the Treasury uh, um, a lot of the Treasury market. Whereas in equities now, you you have yields that are somewhat higher than uh, than the dividend payouts of of equities. Um, and at the same time, I mean, you have to look at things. Look, Gina Martin Adams, our equity strategist, has done some great work on on things like earnings, and and the fundamentals are ultimately going to be the driver of of long term prospects for for equities. So, with an, in an environment like we have now, where you have slightly higher inflation, where you have growth prospects that seem okay, at least in the in the near term, um, you, know, you know, the the question is 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 there going to be you know pressure on margins and things like that, and and that can wind up meaning that you have 
have an equity market that is based a lot more on fundamentals than necessarily people buying it for income like you've had over the past couple of years. Ira, is this particular market, are we already seeing jitters and uh, some kind of pricing in of the debt ceiling and the possible risk there? Or can we expect a whole new hiccup uh, as people start to wake up to that risk? Yeah, so so the debt ceiling is going to show up in the in the T bill market, and and there are the T bill market keeps on pricing uh, uh, a, a problem with the debt ceiling in and out, and for various dates because the the problem with the debt ceiling with analyzing where the debts when the debt ceiling is going to get hit this time of year is that starting about now you get a lot of tax refunds that come in, and the timing of when those come in winds up being very important because the way that the Treasury Department pays out um, the tax refunds is by issuing treasury bills. And so we're at this point now where if you wind up getting a whole lot of people come in in the next two weeks, there it's possible that even in the first week of March, we wind up with, with the, debt, the debt ceiling being a problem. Whereas if those are a little bit slower than they were, say, last year, then you can wind up actually toward the end of March. So yeah, the, the market is already pricing for that. The market is, is pricing in and out different March T-bills um, as being the, uh, the problem for, uh, for the debt ceiling. We, we still think it's somewhere in the second half of March. That's what our model shows. But again, there's a lot of uncertainty around the inputs to that model. And, uh, and, and that's the behavior of the taxpayer. Thank you so much. Ira Jersey, a really important time to be watching the Treasury market right now. Thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey is an interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence coming to us from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. The real story of this week's turmoil really is volatility exchange traded notes and just generally the volatility and short volatility trade. Here to talk about that is Sarah Ponsek, cross ass reporter with Bloomberg News. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome. So we did get news today that Credit Suisse is liquidating uh, their short volatility exchange traded note. Not tiny. This had what, $3 billion at one point in it? Who are the investors behind us? And walk us through uh, what happened here. So the investors behind this, it's definitely a combination. So Credit Suisse was the biggest holder of XIV. They actually had about 32% of the holdings. So the remaining 68, we can't know for sure, can be some institutional, but it is a lot of retail investors who don't understand exactly what the risks of these products are. I mean, I remember a couple of months back, we had stories coming about out of workers at Walmart who were making money off of buying these products, uh, trading the VIX because they just thought that it was easy money because they thought this tranquility would stay calm forever. But they didn't understand what would actually happen if the VIX spiked like we saw it did happen yesterday. So my question is, were there advisors that were peddling these products to them in a way that they shouldn't have been. We saw that BlackRock came out today demanding more regulation, especially uh, given the fact that exchange-traded notes are often conflated with exchange-traded funds. Uh, so what are people saying about that? Exactly. So I think this is kind of a watershed moment for the ETF industry because we haven't had to deal like with something like this yet. And what happened is, like you said, Larry Fink came out, BlackRock has come out. They're urging more regulation, saying that the people who create these funds need to actually say 
and let people know what these risks actually entail and kind of separate themselves from the ETF industry because they're not vanilla ETFs. And I think someone like a BlackRock is really nervous that people are going to start generalizing and this is going to affect their products. People are going to be scared of buying their plain vanilla ETFs, buying the S&P 500 because of what just happened with the VIX. Now, one was an ETN XIV, but then one of them was actually an ETF. It still operates in a similar way, but still they're basically saying that there should be more regulations when you're not dealing with a plain vanilla ETF explaining what the actual risks at hand are. Well, he is not plain vanilla when it comes to anything related to the markets, and that is Corey Johnson, and I want to bring him in. He is our anchor and editor-at-large for Bloomberg TV and radio and co-host with Carol Masser of Bloomberg Markets PM. And also, if you look back into his uh, history, his career history, he was also a portfolio manager previously at Kingsford Capital Management as well as Canal Capital. And um, Corey, what do you make of this, uh, this conversation about volatility and volatility-linked exchange-traded funds? So I think what's really amazing here is this is an unprecedented, this is a true black swan event. Uh, written into the, uh, the, the, the structure of this XIV product, this, ETN, this exchange-traded note, was a really interesting clause. And it said that if the underlying security spiked more than 80%, it could trigger essentially a liquidation. And that had never happened before, ever, in the history of the VIX. So even those people who were sophisticated and may have actually gone through the trouble of reading the prospectus and understanding what they were getting into might have looked at this and said, yeah, but when is this going to happen? And this really does get to the old uh, saw, you know, it's different this time. It was different this time. We've never, ever seen volatility spike more than 80% in a given day. Um, it was also interesting to see this happen really in the late moments of the trade yesterday when uh, it was clear that this thing was going to become, um, uh, uh, you know, this, this, whole, this whole instrument was going to disappear. And uh, uh, the underlying, one of the underlying instruments suddenly traded down in the last half an hour of trading. Uh, worth noting also that uh, we know some of the robo-advisors and Vanguard were unable to deal with clients at that point. They weren't picking up the phones. Their systems weren't accepting trades. So any investors who were in this through that giant brokerage house of Vanguard, for example, couldn't get out. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. Uh, and, you know, we talked about the value of this thing. We don't know who the holders are. But if you just add up the number of, of uh, holdings that we do know about, there were about, call it, 15 million shares out, which means that the, at, the, at the $99 value, it had about a $1.5 billion valuation uh, completely wiped out overnight. And as you mentioned, that 80% threshold that was reached uh, yesterday, 115% increase for the VIX. Yeah, and uh, certainly it is being liquidated. And you have to wonder about what kind of build-on effect it has uh, being liquidated at a weak time uh, leaves even less value. Corey Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Bloomberg Markets co-anchor uh, and also uh, Sarah Ponsack, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you both uh, very much. The head of the Bank for International Settlements, he has uh, really taken uh, Bitcoin to task. He describes it as, quote, a combination of a bubble, a Ponzi scheme. And he says, due to the energy consumption required for mining it, he calls it an environmental disaster. This was a quote from Augustin Karstens. He is the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements. Here to give us his view is Ryan Radloff. He is the chief executive of CoinShares UK, helping to manage about a billion dollars in crypto assets. Joining 
joining us from London. Ryan, uh, just give you the opportunity to respond to uh, Mr. Carstens. What would you say to him? Hi. Thank, yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, it, Bitcoin is a, obviously a controversial topic. Um, it's certainly not a Ponzi. Um, there, we've been in a, a state of mania about it over the last 12 months. But really what Bitcoin is, is an index measure of the dissatisfaction of the current legacy financial system. And it's no surprise that individuals that are sitting on the other side of that in the legacy system uh, would aim to take shots at it. Um, but if you look at what Bitcoin is doing across the world from a humanitarian standpoint, um, it is enabling people to be financially free for the first time um, without having an account with any bank or anywhere else. So it's serving just as much good um, as any any one of those negative points that he mentioned. All right. Well, I've got to say uh, financial freedom isn't what I think of when I look at the stock, at the price of Bitcoin over yeah. the past couple of weeks. Uh, it certainly is not financial freedom for the people who bought it at $18,000 since it's fallen below $6,000. i will get a late, latest reading in a second. But mm -hmm. uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, do you really think that the people who are in Bitcoin right now are people protesting the f structure of the financial system? Actually, right now, just to clarify, it's a little over over seven thousand um, dollars, but or, or rather, is this people who are bored of the markets that have gotten very tranquil, not this week, uh, withstanding, and are trying to make a big buck uh, by going in here? Well, I think it's both, without question. I mean, the early days of Bitcoin, where you had technologists and early adopters, there's even this libertarian movement to it, as, as I mentioned. Um, you know, in the last few months, we've seen the users come into into crypto highly, you know, mostly for speculation purposes. And they're getting a hard lesson right now, um, a lesson that many of us have learned over the last four years being in this market, that this is going to correct every quarter. Um, it's it's going to be volatile. Hold on for the ride. Um, and, you know, but it's, it's going to be increasing in user adoption network value over a long-term scale. So we look at it much more uh, on a long-term horizon. Okay. So let's, let's look at a long-term horizon. Where are we headed with this? Well, there's a few new fundamentals to look at. Um, you know, what, what we see is Bitcoin, and you've heard this before, displacing the concept of, of digital gold and creating this new market for decentralized digital money. And the things that, that people should start paying attention to are, are new things like network stability, node count, and new fundamentals of this asset class, not necessarily what technical analysis of a price is going to start doing. Um, so I think that as the market becomes more educated, you'll start seeing and hearing things like uh, network node count and distribution. And that's the things that I think users and people need to start paying attention when they're analyzing these new asset classes like Bitcoin. What is network node count? Yeah, so, so at CoinShares, what our research team we'll look at is the number of nodes that are operating and running uh, the Bitcoin software. And the more nodes there are, the more decentralized and strong the network becomes. And those are important fundamentals and factors. And if you look at the last six months, Bitcoin's network unquestionably has gotten stronger through the second half of the year by growing in node count 45%. Um, and yes, we're seeing a big risk off correction throughout the markets, not just Bitcoin in the first half of this year. Um, but if you look at the underlying fundamentals, Bitcoin, in terms of network strength, Bitcoin's never been stronger. Um, so so we, we're very excited about that. Now, this is node count. I beg your That's pardon. Right. N-O-D-E, node count. That's right. It's an important, it's an important factor to watch. Um, almost think of it as a new fundamental. Uh, and instead of looking at price to earnings ratios 
or, or margins of a company, this is an example of what you should be looking at in terms of analyzing a new network-based asset class like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple, or one of these others. You know, today, uh, I know that the SEC chair is testifying in front of Congress about cryptocurrency regulation. We've heard uh, from South Korean regulators, Japanese regulators are looking into uh, particularly one of the exchanges there. I'm just wondering, I mean, you talk about financial independence and independence from the uh, sort of traditional financial system, but you need to be connected to it in some way, since uh, as we see futures now of Bitcoin Mm -hmm. Are trading and a lot of these contracts are securities and being treated as such by the SEC. Uh, so, what's the sort of comfortable intersection here of government oversight and regulation uh, and uh, freedom or independence from traditional financial worlds? Yeah, it's it's this is a good question. It's it's a hot topic right now, and and I personally I think that we need more regulation specifically around the consumer protection. Um, uh, elements of what we're seeing in the ICO market. Um, we need a clear-cut um, uh, you know, report that I think comes from the crypto community, almost like a code of ethos of how things are going to be done. Um, and that needs to be uh, liaison and passed pass through uh, regulators from the legacy world. So it's going to be very difficult for the regulators to come up with this code of conduct, if you will, um, on their own. Um, so I think this needs to come from the crypto community. It needs to be uh, brought to the regulators um, and, and worked on that jointly. Uh, but it's going to be very difficult. And, and part of the reason why is because you have three elements at play here. You've got first the fact that we're dealing with monetary assets that don't require a name to be moved around. Uh, the second is that they're global, so they don't fall under any jurisdiction. And the third is that they can actually move other assets like dollars over these, over these uh, networks. So it creates a very difficult challenge for regulators. So that's why I think it needs to come from the crypto community and then pass through and work with the, the regulators to come to some code of, of ethos or conduct. Who, who or what entity from the crypto community would be the most likely leader? Well, I think, you know, if you think of, if you think of where the intersection, it, it needs to happen where the intersection of fiat to crypto occurs. Um, and that is on the, that's, those are the exchanges. So um, the Coinbase's of the world, um, those, those are the, the individuals that are facilitating the process of the movement of legacy money, like fiat money, into uh, blockchain-based monetary assets or cryptocurrencies. Um, so exchanges, groups like us, um, we're going to be um, working with a group out of the UK um, to work with the UK government on this. Uh, we're we're going to help spearhead that. And, and then there's other companies like Coinbase that are taking leadership roles as well. Um, yeah. And, and that, that's, those are the types of companies and the profile of where it needs to come from. Ryan Radloff, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really interesting. And uh, it would be great to keep in touch with you as uh, this story unfolds. Ryan Radloff is Chief Executive Officer of CoinShares UK, which has a billion dollars in crypto assets and is based in London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.